Direction point. Direction point. A Doctor Who Podcast Network. Well, hi everybody. Welcome back to Doctor Who Literature, the podcast taking you through the world of the Doctor Who novelizations put out by Target Books from 1973 onward in publication order. We're a member of the Direction Point Doctor Who podcast network. My name is Jason, and I'm your host on this journey, this very long journey. have a packed show for you today, but a lot of news to get through. First, this week we are covering the eighth of ten consecutive Peter Davison novelizations put out between 1983 and 1984 by Target Books. The book of the week is Kinda a season 19 story, one of the last season 19 stories to be novelized, only one left after this, and that's not coming out for a few more years in target publication order. A bonus episode is also overdue and hopefully will be out shortly. I have been busy on other podcasts as well. I have repackaged a few Doctor Who literature episodes for Trap One, you can hear a supercut of three of my four interviews with Philip Hinchcliffe, now repackaged for Trap One, and you can hear the full version of my recent interview with Elizabeth Morton, which appeared in episode 81B, The Five Doctors Novelization Part 2, the complete Elizabeth Morton interview, and my review of her novel, The Orphans from Liverpool Lane, is now on Trap One as well. I recently made my first, and hopefully not my last, appearance on Dave Rennie's excellent podcast, A Kettle and Some String, which goes through Doctor Who stories in randomizer order at length and in great detail. I was happy to speak with Dave recently about The Tomb of the Cybermen, the second Doctor epic. We talk about perspectives on the story from the 1960s to its rediscovery in the early 1990s to today, An awful lot to discuss, and I will link to that in the show notes as well. I recently recorded an episode of Gallifrey's Most Wanted with friend of the podcast, Ross, who is coming back in my rotation here soon. We discussed a William Hartnell story. That episode is probably coming out within the next week, and I will link to that in the show notes next time, or at least the next episode after that one comes out. That was a fun conversation as well. Always love talking about black and white Doctor Who. And the good news is, after this run of ten straight Peter Davison novelizations, we will have a lot of black and white Doctor Who to talk about on Doctor Who literature as the novelizations starting in 1984 turn their attention back to the past. Speaking back to the past, this week it was revealed that the next Blu-ray collection box set will be season 20. Pete McTighe put out his most ambitious trailer yet, a 13-minute minisode, which features Janet Fielding and Sarah Sutton reprising their roles as Tegan and Nyssa. The first couple of minutes are a very emotional reunion between the two, and then there are some crazy surprise twists as well, including a look at some of the excellent special features and interviews that are going to be packed in to that box set. I am going to be discussing that box set on Trap One when it is released later this year. Very much looking forward to that as well. 
not only are we getting the Season 20 Blu-ray box set, but we are also getting three new Target novelizations in the first month of 2024, as Russell T. Davies himself announced on Instagram. Very exciting news because all three of his 2023 specials, co-starring David Tennant, and Catherine Tate, and Neil Patrick Harris, and many, many other high-profile guests, including what I believe is Bernard Cribbins' final acting performance before his passing. All three of those novelizations are coming out, all by experienced Doctor Who novelists, Gary Russell, Mark Morris, and James Goss. We will be covering all three of those books over on Trap One, I myself will be part of the panel for one of those books. We will read those and record those at the beginning of 2024, but in a larger sense, I cannot wait for those to come out. RTD promises that they are all going to be bangers. Speaking of Neil Patrick Harris, we have some notes from Doctor Who literature producer David Barsky. When I recently, during an interview, talked about all the Broadway stars who are appearing, on the upcoming RTD era of Doctor Who, Jinx Monsoon, Bonnie Langford, Jonathan Groff, I forgot to mention Neil Patrick Harris, who has trod the boards on Broadway several times. I also mentioned in my last Five Doctors episode a point that David Barsky made about the use of the word obelisk in the novelization. I referred to a segment that Barsky recorded for my Five Doctors episode, which has not aired yet. Remember, I asked you all for audio reminiscences. He provided one, and I discussed it in passing as if it had already been on the show. However, of course, all of those audio recordings will come out in my next bonus episode featuring the Five Doctors, which has not been released yet, but is very much a work in progress. I also want to point out in the show notes, James Couray Smith, who was on the show recently in episode 81A, has done an excellent essay on his psychic paper substack about the new adventures, a Doctor Who topic very near and dear to my heart. I did a documentary on the first four new adventures a couple of years ago for Trap One, and I am always happy to talk about those books at length. I don't know if Doctor Who literature will be covering them because there are several podcasts that talk about the new adventures already, but I really enjoyed James's essay, and I will also be linking to that in the show notes. My guest this week, once again, Dale Smith, who last joined me for my episode on the Hand of Fear. That was last year. That came out as episode number 46. This week is Dale's second appearance on the show, and I can promise you it will not be his last. We talk a lot about Kinda, the book. We talk a lot about Kinda, the TV episode. We talk about Dale's newest book, which we will talk about after the break. And there is a new game being brought to Doctor Who literature for the first time, and Dale is the one bringing it. Before we jump to that interview, I did watch some Doctor Who on Pluto TV earlier tonight. Very interesting because when I turned the TV on, it was part 14 of The Trial of a Time Lord. I was not quite interested in watching that, so I put on something else. When I turned Pluto back on, they were showing part 2 of An Unearthly Child, The Cave of Skulls. 
I think that is a strongly underrated historical. I am talking, of course, about the three-part caveman story that follows the Unearthly Child premiere episode of Doctor Who. The dialogue in that is very lyrical. There are some terrific acting performances, even as the caveman. Eileen Way plays a very sinister grandmother, although it's sobering to note that she was only 52 when she recorded that part, which is not too much older than I am now. She, of course, appeared much older when I first saw that story in 1985, but time marches on for all of us. What was interesting is that I was not expecting Unearthly Child to air directly after the final Six Doctor story. What about the Sylvester McCoy era? And looking ahead on the Pluto schedule, they are mixing and matching. They are showing an episode of Hartnell, followed by an episode of McCoy, and so on and so forth. So it alternates Unearthly Child and Dragonfire and the original Daleks story from 1963-1964 and Remembrance of the Daleks. So if you happen to be watching Pluto TV on the States or in Canada on Saturday night, you saw a very interesting mix of William Hartnell and Sylvester McCoy stories aired all jumbled together instead of all four parts of one story and then all three parts of the next. They are alternating Hartnell and McCoy every half hour on the half hour. It's a pretty fascinating look. And speaking of fascinating looks, after the break, Doctor Who, Kinda, with Dale Smith. Let's get to it. Hi, I'm Rupert Booth. I am known as Paul Ferry. And my name is Barry Williams. Together, we host Time Ram. Time Ram's a cruel mistress. It's a random number generator. That also. We roll a number from 1 to 13, and that's our doctor. Then 1 to 300 for the story, and then we ram them together. Even if it doesn't make sense. Cruel, I tell you. Time round, putting the wrong doctors in the wrong stories, so you don't have to. You're listening to Doctor Who Literature. Dale Smith, welcome back to Doctor Who Literature. You were last with us for the Hand of Fear novelization, which is a Doctor Who story characterized in fandom by a rubbish-looking monster. And you are joining me now for the novelization of Kinda, which is a story that is characterized in fandom by a rubbish-looking monster. <laughs> How are you today? I am all right. Thank you very much. This is my first official one for your podcast, isn't it? Where last one I was a last-minute replacement. Yes, but I'm glad that I found you. And uh, last time we talked quite a bit about your writing career and about your website. Do you have any updates for us? Anything new that you wish to promote? Uh, I have just had a new Black Archive announced, so you can be the first people to hear about it. They, uh, I'm doing a Black Archive on The Greatest Show in the Galaxy, which obviously you won't get to for a while, but that is coming out next month from Obvious Books. So the book is being released literally next month is what you're saying? Yeah, it's... Uh, Beginning of August, should be. That's excellent. No, Greatest Show in the Galaxy is all the way down on my schedule because it was close to being one of the last of the Target books. So I have that scheduled for slot 144. And of course, this is only book number 84, and it came out as book number 83. So that is well over a year away. 
but that is not going to stop me from getting the Black Archive first, of course. <laughs> well, everybody should. So, what was your in in terms of greatest show in the galaxy? If there's anything that you can uh, tease for us in advance of the book's release. They, the first reason I went for it was uh, back when I did my first book for Telos, which was part of their Time Hunter series. I was thinking of things I wanted to do with them, and I knew that they did more factual books than they did fiction. And in my infinite wisdom, I decided to pitch to them a history of UK hip-hop. And they said no on the basis that it didn't have a lot to to do with Doctor Who. So this Black Archive is me proving that they are wrong about that, and they should have said yes. When greatest show first hit PBS in the States, and that probably would have been late 1989 or early 1990. Obviously, as a white kid growing up in the New York City suburbs in the late 80s, hip-hop, or rap was the more common term at the time, was everywhere. So I was very excited, and I played that one scene over and over and over again and quickly memorized bringing in an American actor to perform the first rap in Doctor Who history, and (laughs) possibly the last, as far as I know. Now, welcome, folks. I'm sure you'd like to know we're at the start of one big circus show. There are acts that are cool and acts that are made. Some acts are scary, some acts will dance. Acts of all kinds, and you can count on that. From folks that fly to disappearing acts. There are lots of surprises for the family at the greatest show in the galaxy. So many strange surprises, I'm prepared to bet whatever you've seen before. You ain't seen nothing yet. The last time that rap appears in the show until the new series, Father's Day, has UK rap in it as well. I had completely forgotten about that. Uh, at least as, as, all, all I recall in Father's Day is getting rickrolled by the director. <laughs> Fair enough, yeah. <laughs> so, greatest show in the galaxy is a story made under interesting production circumstances. I believe it had to be filmed mostly outdoors in tents because of an asbestos problem at TV Center. Do I have that correct? You do, yeah. It's uh, another one of the stories that nearly didn't happen because they found asbestos and so lost their studio filming days. And after a lot of scrabbling around, they decided to hire a big top tent and put it up in Elstree Studios. And... Uh, film everything there which made a big difference to the show because it actually looks like they're filming it in the tent because they are and it it's a lot better than it would have been in the studio it's uh it's not something i actually mentioned in the black archive at all because it's one of the the main things that people know about it and i'm i was doing my best to try and move off into different areas that people weren't aware of It's also a very, I should say, it's a story with a lot of legs and a long afterlife because you had a prequel slash sequel, Big Finish Audio, written by Stephen Wyatt. I believe Jessica Martin has done a lot of comic book work from her character in the story. So this is one of the McCoy stories that has the biggest footprint probably in the 21st century. Yes, and uh, I 
believe Big Finish made Jessica Martin's character a companion for a while as well, which was a very good idea and something they possibly should have thought of at the time. Absolutely. Um, of course, I will ha be happy to bring you back for a later discussion after the Black Archive is out and after I've read it. And of course, we don't want to give away all of your secrets today since the book <laughs> has not yet hit the streets. But uh, we're here today to talk about Kinda. Now, of course, with Hand of Fear, it was very fortuitous because I had had a guest back out at the last minute and you had just emailed me about discovering my podcast a couple of days earlier. So I immediately... Um, I immediately press gang you into the spot, I should say. And this is a book that we discussed a long time ago. So I've had you down for the Kinder slot for quite some time. Now, you claim to have heard me make a derogatory reference to the snake in Kinda elsewhere in this podcast. And I have to say that I have no recollection of ever actively insulting the snake. <laughs> but when you're talking for 90 minutes a week, sometimes your brain will fill in sentences for dead time that you would never say in, in daily life. So I may have reached for a easy joke about uh, the production of the snake. But I guess it is the elephant in the room, even though Kinda is a story not about elephants th themselves. So I want to let you open up. How do we defend the way that Peter Grimwade stages that snake in 1981 for air date in early 1982 looking back with the smug perspective of 42 years of advances in tv production <laughs> and uh, visual language well my eldest daughter has just discovered new doctor who so i've been watching a lot of it with her and one of the the main things you notice comparing it to the old series is how much the nuts and bolts of tv have changed over over that period of time where it wasn't around. So New Who is very much a modern TV show and the pacing of it is different, the aesthetic of it is different. And it's it's part of a shift in British TV away from what British TV used to be and more into the American style of what television is. So American TV very quickly moved into being like film, presumably because you've got the film industry over there and that's something that everyone knows about. Whereas in the UK, when TV started, it only really had the British theatre industry to fall back on. So everybody who worked on the early days of Doctor Who came from a theatrical background from the people writing it and the actors in it and a lot of the directors and the audience watching it also watched it in a similar way to how they would watch theatre and for a lot of for a lot of tv it it was dramatized broadcast theatre rather than being a film that you could watch in your home and along with that, you get a lot of theatrical traditions that come into it. We could go back and talk about Talons of Wang Chan again if we want, but we probably won't. And the production of it was completely different to how it is now. So things like that snake, which I think everybody who's ever seen it can agree it doesn't look like a realistic snake, were they were made and received in a different kind of way. People watched it 
and the special effects in it were intended to convey something to spark your imagination in the same way that they would in the theater it was it was something that suggested a real life thing rather than try to recreate it which is more what it's moved into now and i think that's that's kind of where the the fan thing of saying you just ignored the special effects comes from because in the uk people used to watch tv in a way where they weren't expecting the special effects to look like real life and so if you got something like that snake it wasn't as off-putting as it is to an audience today because it looks so unreal and like it's been lashed together from papier-mâché it's interesting how english tv production and american tv production diverged so quickly because if you go back to the earliest days of popular television in the states which is to be reductive the 1950s the concept the original conception was it was theater for your living room so the original seat of tv production was new york city which is where i am coming to you from today and there's a very interesting Paul Muni movie from the late 1950s called The Last Angry Man. I think it was Paul Muni's final picture, which is about an aging doctor in Brooklyn who is pitched for a reality TV show broadcast about the life of a doctor in what was becoming inner city Brooklyn. And this is, of course, decades before reality TV actually became a thing. But the idea is that television was going to be based in New York, and it was going to be theater for your screen. So there was a lot of live television dramas. And this is how Rod Serling made his name several years before Twilight Zone. So he had scripts like Patterns and Requiem for a Heavyweight, which became theatrical movies, but started off as live theater. And it was a theatrical style. They were, you know, minimalist sets. Then a lot of these... The specials are now on YouTube and they can be watched easily. So Flowers for Algernon started off as a one-hour live TV broadcast done in Manhattan. And later on it became a TV movie and then a theatrical movie. So that was the original conception of how TV was supposed to look. And then you have Lucille Ball, who has a different idea. And she basically invents, she and Desi Arnaz, they invent the multi camera sitcom setup which is done out in hollywood rather than in new york city and pretty soon that becomes the center of tv production and then you have multiple cameras trained on a standing set rather than you know one or two film cameras roaming around a small new york city studio and that changed the visual look quickly and that's how rod serling goes out to los angeles does the time element which is done for desi and lucy that became the backdoor pilot for the twilight zone And he moves out there and does Twilight Zone in Los Angeles, uh, even though his production company is named after a a city in uh, upstate New York. So that's that's the potted and 95% correct history of how television quickly stopped becoming live theater in the States and production values became much more important. But I want to ask you, as Peter Grimwade and his team are sitting there in 1981, this is after Star Wars came out. This is after Star Trek The Motion Picture. This is after Empire Strikes Back. In 1981, wouldn't there have been a push for greater 
realism in your visual effects or had English TV not yet adapted to what was happening with these multi, multi, multi-million dollar movie blockbusters? So there definitely was a push to make it more like Star Wars very quickly after that came out. It, you can see it in Doctor Who, their response to Star Wars was Underworld. And that also tells you why it was so hard for Doctor Who to go in that kind of direction. Because TV in the UK had only really been a, a mass entertainment tool for about 20 years at the point that Kinder was being made. And we're a much smaller market. There's much less money around. And a lot of the innovation was being done by the BBC, who are government-funded and very traditional. So they had a lot of people who had an idea of how things were done and how things should be done, and that would have been set decades before. They also had not a lot of money, and for something like Doctor Who, the the way the budgeting worked was a new programme would get its budget worked out, and then if it recurred, as Doctor Who had, it would get a percentage increase, which was similar for all similar programmes. Because Doctor Who started in the 60s, its budget was worked out then. And ever since then, it had been getting percentage increases. So in real terms, they were having to make the program with less and less money. So there were outside pressures trying to make Doctor Who move to be more visual and more Star Wars based. But in practical terms that really wasn't possible until Russell T. Davis brought it back. But for Kinder specifically, I think you'd, if you got that as a script to direct, the first thing you would notice about it is that it is incredibly theatrical for a Doctor Who story. The, the different parts of it are actually, there's the stuff that's going on in the dome, which is basically a two-hander play of two military men going crazy together and then you've got the doctor and todd going off and learning about buddhism and feminism from the old wise woman and again that's all done as conversations between each other the the mara itself which is the ostensible doctor who monster in it doesn't actually do much except have theatrical conversations with Tegan in a blank set and it's it's a lot more it's a lot more wordy and it's got a lot more imagery in it than you normally get from a Doctor Who story and it automatically I think would pull you towards going this is a a piece of theatre that we're going to broadcast on the TV for people. It's interesting because the Mara is portrayed by three different actors and the snake prop because the actor who's credited as Duca in the script but not referred to as such on television is only in parts one and two. Tegan is then the live-action Mara very, very briefly 
and then it turns over to the I think Adrian Mills playing Aris uh, for parts three and four. So the, the Mara is not your traditional Doctor Who monster, and that it takes multiple people to portray it. But when we talk about the way that Kinda is set up as a stage play. It would help to know who is Christopher Bailey and where did he come from. So Christopher Bailey started off, uh, I think, in Liverpool. I might be right about that. I might be wrong. And he was from a theatre writing background. He worked in a collective, which was effectively a cooperative who all worked together to put on plays and shared any costs and any profits between themselves. So he was used to writing collaboratively with directors and actors and coming together to make a play that was a visual experience for an audience and then that going away. And reportedly he found it quite difficult working on Doctor Who because they were used to writers coming in, handing over a script and then going away. The He'd written, I think, one of a script for TV, which had brought into the attention of the production team. And he had such a, a difficult experience of writing Kinder and Snake Dance back to back that I don't believe he ever worked for TV ever again and <laughs> went back off to the theatre. The DVD and now Blu-ray production notes for Kinda uh, were written by my guest from a few weeks ago, James Kure Smith, and I was rereading his production notes in preparation for this episode. Kinda had its genesis in conversations between Christopher H. Bigmead, the then script editor, and Christopher Bailey. So this was a story commissioned by big meat even though he was already off the show by the time the scripts were finalized i think it went through anthony root very very briefly during his 90-day stint as interim script editor and then according to the production notes eric sayward is responsible for much of the final draft and it was sayward who took a story about buddhism which doctor who had not done since the early to mid 1970s and turned it more into a story about Christianity, hence the information about temptation and apples in paradise, which if you look at the way the story is set up, it's almost obvious that this would be the first thing that any writer would go for, but it was a Eric Sayward contribution, if I read the production notes correctly. I think that is somewhat to the detriment of the story. I think part one is tremendously interesting. That's, a, I think, a much more pure expression of what Bailey and Bidmead would have talked about. And then episodes two, three, and four. I mean, it trails off into long sequences about grown men playing with paper dolls inside of a military establishment, which is a lot of subtext. And then, of course, the uh, apples and snakes in paradise. Terrence in the novelization, which we'll come to in a little bit zeroes in heavily on the Christian connection, not so much on all the other stuff inside of the story. When would you have first seen Kinda, and how long did it take you to grasp all the layers and all the symbolism that's going on underneath the surface? So my recollection of watching Kinda is 
complicated. <laughs> uh, <laughs> for for a very long time, the first Doctor Who I could remember watching was Colin Baker walking down a tunnel, which I am pretty sure was in the Trial of a Time Lord, the uh, Mind Warp. And if people ask me what the first story I'd seen was, I would always say that. But I knew when I was watching it that I was already a fan, so I must have watched something before that, but I was fairly young at the time. And then I would have been about 11 or 12, I think, when I finally got the novelization of Kinder and sat down to read it. And as I was reading through it, I hit one particular bit, which I might try and read to you, which you can cut out if I'm rubbish at reading. The TSS, the TSS's other arm came out, and the metal hands fumbled clumsily for the simple catch on the wooden box. It was quite true what Karuna had said, they intended Sanders no harm. All the same, as the lid of the box slowly opened and Sanders peered inside, his eyes widened with horror, and sweat began pouring down his face. All the armoured strength of the TSS could not protect him now. And that one moment, as I read it, I suddenly had a flashback to what happened on the screen and seeing that moment and remembering that that moment scared the bejesus out of me. And if you if you watch it back now, there is no good reason for that scene to be so scary because it's as the way I remember it is it, it's more like that moment in Ghostlight where uh, the box opens, light comes out and Redford screams and re-watching it, it's not like that, it's a lot more subtle, you just see Sanders start to tear up a bit and stare into the box, but that one moment as a child, I would have been five at the time, just scared me so much I obviously had to black it out and then rereading the target novelization just brought it all back to me and I realized that if it wasn't the first story I watched it would have been a very early story that introduced me to Doctor Who and probably is why I'm still a fan now. It, your experience sort of mirrors the part two cliffhanger to this story because it's kind of an artificial cliffhanger and I'll, I'll say in a moment it's the wrong cliffhanger for that episode I'll, I'll blame Eric Sayward for that so the doctor and dr todd speaking of people who should have been companions the doctor and dr todd are in the cage in the dome and hindle talking to them through the security camera orders them to open the box and the doctor opens the box and immediately Neris Hughes starts to scream and scream, and that's your cliffhanger moment. In universe, there's no reason for her to scream as the box opens, because as we quickly see, there's nothing under the lid except for, I think, <laughs> a fake doll. So that's not what the cliffhanger moment should have been. Um, what it should have been is the moment when Aris is possessed by the Mara and develops a voice, because part two make a, makes a big deal of saying that male kinda don't have voice and Aris can't speak. And he immediately becomes the bad guy with the red eyes and starts speaking. That That's the A plot. It should have been the cliffhanger moment, whereas the stuff in the dome is the B plot, and there's really no reason for that character to be screaming. But you associate the opening of the box earlier in the story with this moment of pure terror, which 
is not necessarily what the author would have intended. Yeah, I. The only thing I can think is that Kinder as a story is very scary, but it's scary in a way that Doctor Who isn't usually. It is a lot more unsettling and psychological, I think, than a lot of Doctor Who stories. And one of the main things that makes it scary is that you have these two grown-up military man characters who are acting like children. And the opening of the box is the moment that Sanders becomes a child and he's a very affable and nice child, unlike uh, the other one. But it's still something about opening that box took away his status as a grown-up and made him a child. And for someone who was a child watching it, seeing grown-ups acting like children just felt wrong and unsettling and so just makes the whole story feel a lot more creepy than perhaps it should from what's actually happening in it. Kinda is one of those stories that I missed because my local PBS station cycle was at the very end of season 19, Time Flight, when I discovered the show. They didn't cycle around to Kinda again for almost another year. And at that point, my station had moved Doctor Who from 7 p.m. to 11.30. So by the time they moved the show to past my bedtime, being 11, 12 years old, I was only able to watch Doctor Who on Friday nights. So I saw part one of Kinda at age 12, and then, of course, parts two, three, and four aired Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday night. I wasn't able to see them. It was a while before I saw the whole story, so I would have come to the novelization first. There was a moment on page 19 that terrified me. The Kinda came out of the jungle. Dark-eyed, brown-skinned, wearing simple saffron robes, the little group gathered around Tegan, staring solemnly down at her, their faces grave and concerned. Some of them carried garlands of flowers, others various jungle fruits. They studied Tegan thoughtfully for a while. Then, one of the Kinda placed a garland of flowers around her neck. Some of the others laid fruit at her feet. The Kinda turned and melted away. Now, bearing in mind that I'm about 12 years old when I read this, and I hadn't seen the TV version, I was imagining this effect where the Kinda physically melted away. <laughs> I, I didn't realize it was a metaphor or simile or an expression, an idiom. I thought it was an actual <laughs> physical effect. So when I saw the TV episode finally and nothing happened, I wait a minute, what happened to this melting away business? <laughs> So that, that, that was a 12-year-old's misreading of the story, for sure. So that's a similar experience to me, getting the novelization and reading that moment, being terrified of it, and then there being no way for me to watch the actual program and see what it was and how much of it I remembered. So I didn't get to see it again until the um, VHS came out, at which point there'd been another amount of time between me reading the book and seeing that moment and I've never reconnected that moment of terror again and I've never quite understood where it came from. I think Kinda Part 1 is probably one of the top 10 individual half hours of classic Doctor Who because it's one of those scripts where every single line of dialogue 
is freighted with double meaning. The first line of dialogue is, what's the matter, boy? Bad dreams, eh? That's literally the plot, because bad dreams is one of the many things that this story is about, with a capital A. When the doctor refers to the TSS as being, quote-unquote, controlled by the brain of the wearer, that's exactly what the Mara is. The Mara's brain controls the body that it's wearing, whether it's Tegan or Aris or any number of characters in Snake Dance, the sequel TV story the following year. And then, of course, you have this brief moment where Adric and Nyssa are playing, I guess what you would call drafts, we would call checkers outside of the TARDIS. That moment becomes the basis for Tegan's possession by the Mara, where you have these two characters dressed in Elizabethan garb playing chess outside of a huge pile of metal girders, which is Tegan's mental representation of the TARDIS. When they come to the wind chimes and Tegan starts hitting the notes, the doctor says, go on, I'm sure it's safe, encouraging her to do it. And of course, it's not safe. (laughs) And it sets the entire disaster in motion, which is followed by a hilarious underrated Matthew Waterhouse moment where he takes an enormous branch and starts banging on the chimes to make this complete discordant cacophony, which is very funny, but nobody ever notices it because it's Adric doing it. But then later on, when you get to Tegan's Mara Possessed Dream Sequence, the actor who plays the Mara in parts one and two is Tegan's subconscious representation of the doctor who put her up to this by telling her that the wind chimes were safe. So I think part one is phenomenal and there's so much going on and every single line has double meaning and it's, it's energizing. And I don't think that parts two, three, and four cash in on this promise. And I'll tell you why after, after I've heard from you, but I would credit Eric Sayward for not, understanding what Bailey was trying to do and putting in this more generic and obvious Christian symbolism, which is not what the story Christopher Bailey wants to tell about Buddhist terms and Sanskrit words. But in terms of the intelligence of the script, where does Kindesell itself to you now, now that we're both reasonably uh, approaching grown-up age? I think it's got a lot going for it still. There's... um the the Buddhist undertone pops up in different places and becomes important. You you get Panna dying and being reincarnated again as the the young girl. You get the moment that Tegan gives in to the Mara and gets possessed is the moment where she disappears. So she loses her individuality. And that scares her so much, it pushes her to the dark places of her mind, where Buddhism would say that's you need to go to that place and move through the fear to be able to reach enlightenment, which, again, is a loaded term in Doctor Who. And it's got a lot... It's, it's structured like there's a Doctor Who story going on underneath it that the Doctor gets moved away from and told isn't important. So you've got the stuff going on in the dome. You've got the uh, six bombs getting wired together and a mad, crazy villain who's threatening to destroy 30 miles worth of the planet. 
that is usually what a Doctor Who story would be about. And the Doctor would come in at the last minute and defuse the bombs and everyone would go off and be happy. But what you've got instead is the Doctor getting pulled away from that by the Buddhist theme of the story, trying to teach him about the wheel of life and how suffering and pain is inevitable and it's not it's not something you can completely excise from the universe and it's trying to tell him that kind of doctor who itself is slightly irrelevant and really what he should be doing is learning more about himself as a person and moving into himself and that's a very odd thing to have as a doctor who story and so I think that that carries through all four of the episodes enough to make it the story that so many people have as one of their favourite Doctor Who stories. It's an interesting feature of both of Bailey's stories because in this one, the Doctor is literally literally referred to as an idiot, and that's the way that Panna sees him. So it's the Doctor's ignorance that becomes a plot point. And it's interesting that the moment that solves the story, the breaking of the mirror that releases the kinda captives in the dome from Hindle's command, the Doctor doesn't do that. It's basically Dr. Todd who figures that out. And then in Snake Dance, the next story, the Doctor is basically seen as a lunatic. And the story is told from the point of view of those who think the Doctor is crazy, just some ranting madman. Bailey never gives the Doctor the big heroic moment. There's no action hero type moment here where the Doctor is firmly in control. This is a Doctor who doesn't know what he's doing, acknowledges that he doesn't know what he's doing, and the fact that he doesn't know what he's doing becomes a plot point, and he has to be taught by experts in each story what to do, Panna and, and then Dojin. So I like Bailey's conception of the Doctor a lot more than the Doctor that we later get during the Eric Sayward years, where the Doctor is a two-fisted, the gun-toting, action hero, comedy dropping. You'll forgive me if I don't drop in, that, that sort of thing. So that, again, would be Eric Sayward's more negative influence, which is not what Christopher Bailey was trying to do at all. It, it's a very interesting Davison you get in this story, because he's he's not moved into that slightly ineffectual very kind but not very useful doctor and he's a lot more snarky at the beginning he's clearly got a problem with Adric <laughs> in general and he he just wants to get out there and look at stuff and he's not particularly he's the one who tells Tegan it's fine to lie down and have a kip and starts the whole story going and the story itself never really acknowledges that it just sort of goes yeah bad stuff was going to happen but it's it's his impatience to get off and try and discover something that he thinks is interesting that makes the whole story happen and he's a lot more tetchy with a lot of the supporting cast as well he has moments where he makes snide comments about people and that that's not what you associate with Davison's doctor and it doesn't really come back a lot until the very end of his his era when he's he's already said he's going I, I I wonder what it was that made him change the way he performed the doctor 
That's an interesting question. It could have to do with the quality of the scripts. I know it's been said that if he had known that season 21 was going to be written the way it was, he would have stayed longer to be able to take advantage of more scripts like that. And then I'm sure a part of it, of course, as you glean from the various production notes, is John Nathan Turner wanted him to be a personality um, and, and bring his own character to the table, whereas Peter Davison saw it as more of a character part. And he was always adding things that aren't in the script, the little eye rolls, little gestures, the business where he tosses a coin and then goes in the opposite direction. That's all Peter Davison adding on top of the character. But John Nathan Turner wanted a, uh, I say bland, um, he wanted a non-comedic character who was not going to be like Tom Baker. But that's really all that Peter Davison wanted to do, these little Tom Baker unscripted grace moments that add so much valuing and comedy to the series humor i should say rather than comedy certainly not on a slapstick way <laughs> i think where kinda doesn't quite work for me is the way part one doesn't match up with the rest of the story though because we learn that the mara takes hold through the dreaming of an unshared mind the very first thing we see in the story is hindle asleep alone we learn that panna believes the dome is an existential threat to the kinda but that only works if the dome is the way the mara manifests itself in the end i mean the dome i guess is a threat because hindle briefly wants to blow everything up but that never actually comes to pass and the real danger doesn't come from the dome at all does a little bit because they the way the mara focuses the kinder to try and get the death and destruction that it needs is by creating the not we and setting people against them so if the dome wasn't there it's implied that the mara would have a much harder time of trying to get anybody to kill anybody well that's done through aris Whereas, arguably, I think the story works better if Hindle is the one who is possessed, and that explains his actions. Instead, Hindle brings his own madness to the table, and the Mara has nothing to do with him. I feel like, thematically, the story works a little bit better if Hindle becomes part of the Mara's schemes, rather than somebody who just happens to be crazy, which conveniently ties into what the Mara wants, but he's not actually under the influence of the Mara at all. Yes, I I can agree that the two strands of it are incredibly separate and never really come together. Like like I say, it's it's as if there's a Doctor Who story happening in the background that it the rest of the story just doesn't want to engage with. It's it is interesting to like you say, the first time the script got written and submitted it was for Tom Baker's Doctor. And you can't see Tom Baker in the version of Kinder that we got. So it would be very interesting to know exactly how it worked with that different character in it. I suspect that version, the Doctor would have been more involved in all of it, and so it would have all tied together more neatly. But, like I say, what I like about it is that kind of separation where it says, look at this Doctor Who story happening, and isn't it a bit silly and are you sure we need that kind of thing to be going on? 
I do like the idea, I guess, that the Mara is not the real villain in the story. It's human nature that is the villain. And looking at the production notes that James Kue Smith writes for part one, that was the idea. The real enemy is inside of us. And Mara is a Plotinese, but the Mara is not an independent malevolent force. The Mara is the darkness inside of us all. So in yeah. that sense, what's going on with Hindle is important. But I think in story terms, it works better because we're told the dome is a threat. We're told the Mara takes over a, a, a non-telepathic sleeping mind. And that's what Hindle is doing at the start. It's, it's right there. And the connection isn't made. But this is a story that we can debate endlessly because the discontinuity guide says the story is, quote unquote, about boxes. I would argue that really it's <laughs> about mirrors because the mirror is how Hindle captures the soul of the two kinda captives. And of course, when the kinda realize that they've been possessed by the mirror, one of them takes off the DNA helix and offers his DNA, his soul, to Hiddle, which is a great creepy moment. I think the script underplays it a little bit. Uh, so mirrors are very important to the story, as much as boxes are. But I want to talk now otherwise we could talk for three hours about the symbolism <laughs> of the story and not even scratch the surface and this is not a three-hour show let's talk about the novelization then which is nominally the uh subject of this program is terence dix the wrong person to write the kinder novelization i hate to say it but i think he is his terence's style is very much paired back given the all the information you need about what's going on in the shortest, easiest to digest language. And Kinder is a story that is lyrical and thematic and symbolic. And a lot of that doesn't work in Terence's prose in the book, especially when you've got things like prophetic visions happening where there's symbolism flying around. And in the, in the book itself, what you get is a fairly stark representation of the images that you saw on the screen. It's, Terence got a reputation for being someone who just wrote down what you saw on the screen and copied out the, the dialogue from the script. And this book is probably the closest of his to that being the case. And, and like you say, the... The way he focuses in on the Christian side of stuff, you do get the impression that he didn't, he didn't either didn't connect with the story or didn't see as much in the story as other people do. So you do get a feeling of very a very surface level description of a TV story for this book. And there's also a, a bit right at the beginning which just threw me out completely because he's Terence is from England, but he uh, he talks about Tegan when he's introducing all the characters. And the first thing he says is that Tegan started travelling with the fifth Doctor. Oh, yes. <laughs> Which is not even remotely correct. Yeah, and then he talks about her being a long way from London Airport. And there is no London Airport. And at no point in Tegan's history has anyone mentioned London Airport. It's always been Heathrow. And I just don't know why he did that, because it, it felt like it was written by somebody who wasn't familiar with the country. Hello, this is Jason coming at you from the future. 
Dale reached out to me about an hour after we finished recording with a quote from the Heathrow Wikipedia page with the caption, Who would have guessed? Quote, Airports serving London. London, Heathrow Airport, Main International Airport in Greater London, also known as London Airport from 1946 to 1966. Terence was being archaic. Thanks, Dale, for that correction. I will just slot that right in here. There's a couple of moments in the book that I do like. Uh, uh, we say that Terence does focus on the Christian symbolism. So, so the opening lines, Diva Loca was a paradise. And then uh, later on in the same section, no doubt about it, Diva Loca was paradise, capital P. The paradise where people disappeared. That's good table setting. And then the part three cliffhanger sequence, even though he's only talking about it on a surface level, the succession of single sentence paragraphs does sort of propel the thing along, which is what Terence is best at. And then he does have the doctor observe time, thought the doctor confusedly. Always time. Time running out. Page 92. That's not really what the story is about, but it is good writing. It puts you right there. But who else in the Target stable could have adapted this story? I don't think daily novelizing it was ever going to be an option. Yeah. Um, and someone like Stephen Gallagher, who would, I think, have gotten this story very well, he was only writing his own stories. That leaves us basically with Ian Martyr. What do you think Ian Martyr might have made of this? <laughs> I think in an Ian Martyr book, the dome would have actually blown up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's it's one of those books where because of the, the history of the writing of it and the disagreements about what the final script should be, you, it feels like you very much want the original author to come back and give us their version of it. Right. But with an author, author like Christopher Bailey, who doesn't do prose and wants to work collaboratively, he's not going to get that from sitting down in his office and writing a target novelization on his own so like you say that it doesn't feel like that would ever happen and it's it's a, a book it it feels like it's open for one of the the redos that the target books have been doing more recently where you could get somebody more suited to it to come in and give us a different version of it but it is hard to know who could do that with any authority if it wasn't Christopher Bailey? The the idea of a Stephen Gallagher version of it does actually appeal to me because it, as a as a story, it's very close to the Warrior's Gate, which is, you know, another one where symbolism and visuals play an important part. But his his novelization of Warrior's Gate is coming soon, so we'll see what he does with that. Maybe I'll go back to him and ask him to uh, give us a redo. If the earliest versions of Kinda as a script still survive, perhaps for Eric Sayward's influence, that would be interesting to hear, maybe as a big finish type production where they go back and now produce the original drafts of, of, of more famous scripts. But I don't know if that material is out there. No, I'm not sure either, but yeah, certainly... Certainly Christopher Bailey's approach, which would be to get a, a core of actors together with a director and come up with it between you, 
could still be done now. The, the original actors are still around, the writer's still around, the director would have to be different, but if it was going to be a big finish, it would be audio anyway, so maybe that wouldn't have as big an impact. Maybe uh, maybe that's what we're doing. Maybe we're putting out a plea to Big Finish to give us a new version of Kinder. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, the original draft, if anybody has access to that, I don't believe that they were present on the Blu-ray BD-ROM material. I think they only had the camera scripts, but I did not look at that disc before starting this recording. Maybe I should have. I, I know for the... Black Archive, there was a lot of uh, research done and talking to Christopher Bailey, but I don't think that mentions that previous versions of the scripts exist. I think it was just talking more generally about what they were like. So possibly they have been lost to time. Christopher Bailey, of course, comes back and does a sequel story the following year, Snake Dance, which is also novelized by Terence Dix. The Kinda and Snake Dance novelizations come out back to back, but Kinda is numbered eighty four, even though it comes out first, and Snake Dance is numbered eighty three, even though it comes out second. So Terence must have written these back to back, if not simultaneously. <laughs> Do you think that Snake Dance works better as a TV story because it's a little more plot driven? It's it's interesting. It's. It is definitely a different type of story, and um, the the Black Archive for it, uh, the Black Archive for Kinder, says that uh, Christopher Bailey got Snake Dance off of the back of how annoyed he was at how Kinder went, and Eric Sayward said, "You you can do another one, you can write it, and we'll only do this many rewrites on it." So you feel like it's more what Christopher Bailey wanted for it, but it's still one of the stories that made him go, I'm not doing TV anymore, I'm going to get out of this. It's uh, I read Elizabeth Sandifer on it recently, and she really likes Snake Dance because it is a story of the Doctor being the crazy scientists that nobody listens to when the world's about to end and re-watching it you again you do feel that it's there's a Doctor Who story in there but it's being told in a way that isn't the usual way that Doctor Who stories are told I still prefer Kinder but obviously I've got a strong connection to it in my past whereas Snake Dance at the time I would have watched but it passed me by and didn't make that impact but it is still a very good story and I, I would like to see Christopher Bailey come back and do something else I will say that as I was only able to watch Doctor Who on Friday nights in late 1985 I saw Kinder Part 1 and then I saw Snake Dance Part 2 the Snake Dance Part 2 cliffhanger airing just about at the stroke of midnight when I was 12 years old terrified me to pieces with Tegan's eyes turning red, a much more graphic uh, image of Tegan than we get in Kinda, but I'll talk about that a little more next week. What I want to talk to you about now is you have, usually I'm the one who brings the games. Usually I am the Mara on this program, tempting folks with games. But I understand that you have a game for me this week. 
Yes, well, in the in the UK we have a radio program called I'm sorry I haven't a clue, where people play silly games for the entertainment of an audience, and they have a game called Sound Charades, which is based on the game show Give Us a Clue, which I don't know if ever, that ever made it to the states, but it's a miming game where you try and guess a TV program or a song or a film from somebody miming something. Obviously on the radio they can't mime, so what they do instead is do little scenes where you get enough information to try and guess what it is that they want you to know. Uh, I've, since I was last on this, I've joined Mastodon and I've set up an account called I'm Sorry I Haven't a Who, where <laughs> I play their games but do it from a Doctor Who side. And one of the games that I play on there is uh, Sound Charades with Doctor Who stories. So I thought I would try some of them with you and see if you can work out what they are. All right, give me three of them and I'll consider two out of three a passing score. Bearing <laughs> in mind, I have, you gave me a sample over email yesterday, but I've never seen this in the wild. So hopefully I don't go over three. Okay, so we have our first clue. Uh, Dale, why don't you start us off? This is a fine vessel you have here, Noah, and there's two of every animal. Yes, although the lions have gotten at the unicorns, and I don't know what young ham has been doing to the bulls, but we seem to have some minotaurs we didn't start off with. It must be very hard keeping all this going. Well, yes, but there are some perks. Such as? We have an unending supply of hot beverages. Ooh, I'd love a hot chocolate. Not that one. Coffee? No, not that either. <sighs> That's oh, insane. Goodness, that's that's a little bit naughty there. My goodness. <laughs> well, in the uh, in the original version of it, the game is usually introduced with uh, horrible innuendos about um, Lionel Blair. So they would say things like uh, Lionel Blair was always very pleased to take on a few good men, while Una Stubbs watched and applauded. <laughs> things like that. So, in terms of this being a Doctor Who story. The obvious guess has to be the Ark in Space, which I just saw on TV the other night on Pluto TV with Noah and the Ark. So is it the Ark in Space? It is not the Ark in Space. There is an Ark in the title, but it's an Ark with specific properties. Hmm. So there is an unending supply of hot beverages. Ah, uh, that would be Ark of Infinity. Infinite Tea, yes. Oh, Ark of... oh, I see. So there's a pun in the title. Oh, there's always a pun, surely. All right. Okay, that's a uh, number. That's pretty horrifying. All right. <laughs> Let's go right on for the set. So I'm going to give myself a point for that one. Let's go right on number two. All right, we now have our second clue. Why don't you start us off? Okay. Bonjour. Bonjour. How are you, mademoiselle? I am très excited. I can tell from your accent. I just can't wait. I have never named a municipality before. This is a first for us, too. Normally a committee decides the nom. But today, vous, have you decided on the settlement's new name? Thank you. You're welcome. No, I wish to call this borough thank you. I'm not sure. Could you perhaps think of a French name? Ah, bien sûr. I have just the thing. Hmm, well... Given that we're talking about the names of cities and we're doing the worst possible French accents, the obvious answer here would be City of Death. Oh, afraid not. It's 
you're right that we're talking about cities or another word for cities but it's the she wants to call the town thank you oh, oh, oh. In French. Uh, i've got it i've got it. a town called merci yes ah okay i'm getting the hang of this now i'm gonna give myself a second point for that one definitely so let's bounce right into our third and final clue let's see if you can go three for three well, we're the first Doctor Who production team to ever build a real time machine. Yes, Barry? That's right, Terence. And now we've come back in time to 1889 to do what people always say you should do if you have a time machine available. We have to stop the Second World War, Terence. You do it then, Barry. All right, if we're talking 1889 and a time machine and stopping World War II... The obvious answer would be, let's kill Hitler. But I get the sense that the obvious answer is never the one that it really is. No, that is the correct answer. Barry, let's kill Hitler. <laughs> oh, oh, I see. Barry, let's kill Hitler. Okay. Oh, my goodness. All right. Um, see, you're natural. I, I apologize for my horrible... When my daughter was four years old and I was reading her the Madeline books, I would often do so in the worst possible French accent imaginable <laughs> until my wife put a, put a stop to it, uh, thankfully. So those of you who want to hear what it's like when Jason reads Madeline books to, to his child, <laughs> that's as close as you will ever get. I have probably committed a massacre upon the French people here. Oh, wait, that happened in the massacre in uh, 1966. <laughs> All right, Dale, thanks so much. Um, I'm not sure that game is going to become a perennial, but we can certainly play it the next time that you're on. And I will work on my French accent before we uh, have you back. I look forward to it very much. Thanks so much. Have a great night. Thank you. Now, welcome, folks. I mean it from the heart, because the greatest show is about to start. It's happening right here before your very eyes, and one thing's for sure, you're in for quite a surprise. But then nothing's quite as it seems to be at the greatest show in the galaxy. <laughs> now, welcome, folks. We got a brand new act. He's a real fine, and no doubt that's a fact. He'll entertain you. He'll make you stare. And our great new act is seated over there. Doctor Who, Kinda, by Terence Dix, televised as Kinda, teleplay by Christopher Bailey, televised in February 1982, paperback release date March 15, 1984, target book number 84. Nothing could disturb the serene peace of the planet Diva Loca, or could it? An expeditionary force from Earth is dangerously out of control. And it's not only the peaceful race of the Kinda who are at risk. A gentle stroll in a lush jungle leads the Doctor and Adric to an unexpected confrontation and puts them at the mercy of a maniac. But it is Tegan, lulled to sleep by mysterious wind chimes, who comes closest to the real danger that threatens not only her sanity, but the existence of the whole planet. Kinda is target book 84, which I'm sure confuses you, because this podcast goes in publication order, and the target books at this point in their line are coming out in strict numerical order, 
And the last book we covered on the show, the lovely Modern Undead novelization, was book 82. So where, oh where, is book 83? Well, the short answer is, it hasn't come out yet. We're in March 1984, and book 83, Snake Dance, comes out next month, April 1984. This works to our benefit, since Snake Dance is essentially the sequel to Kinda. Different planet, different style, different tone, but same monster. As we learned, when the novelization of Earthshock came out after the novelization of Time Flight, it really does help the target line when certain books are published in story order. At this point in time, the W.H. Allen hardcovers are coming out several months before the paperbacks, which is why my caption above now specifies that I am going in target paperback release order. My friend Larry von Mersbergen, whose voice you hear twice every episode for the Direction Point promo, and of whom you heard even more back in episode 51, covering the Destiny of the Daleks novelization, does a year-by-year hardcover series on his own podcast, the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast. But this, here at Doctor Who Literature, is strictly a Target's paperback show. However, I will tell you that the hardcover release order is the same. Kinda came out in December 1983, and Snake Dance in January 84. This is also, by the way, for the purists out there, the last Target book of the original run, with a purely photographic cover. As for Kinda, the novelization, and its text, well, you've heard me do several 30-minute long audio essays breaking down the operational art of Terence Dix on this show, and even longer for the War Games novelization, Episode 50, and Malcolm Hulk. This will not be such an essay. Honestly, I don't have much more to say other than what Dale and I covered earlier. Kinda is inarguably one of the most complex Doctor Who stories ever written. Thanks, Captain Obvious. And that's my daughter making her Doctor Who literature debut, by the way. Hopefully more of her in a few weeks. The basic story of Kinda, if you can call it basic, is informed by Buddhist, Freudian, and Christian concepts. The first proper words spoken, What's the matter, boy? Bad dreams directly foreshadow the plot, which is set into motion by Tegan's nightmare. The solution to the B plot, a broken mirror, directly informs the solution to the A plot, a circle of mirrors. House MD, which was one of my favorite American medical dramas once upon a time, made frequent use of that device, the B plot solving the A plot. So there's a lot going on in Kinda. Thanks, Captain Obvious. And, as we mentioned earlier, friend of the podcast, James Couray Smith, who can be heard on episode 81A, part one of the Five Doctors novelization, did a marvelous job on the Kinda DVD and Blu-ray text commentary, showing which elements of the story developed when and why. Which begs the question, for a story too broad and deep for the small screen, why was the novelization written by Terence Dix? Now, I'm not going to validate the typical criticisms that Terence quote-unquote wrote novels while you wait, or did flat script-to-page transcripts with no added flavor. Those are not true. But for a TV script predicated on so many ideas, and conceptually so far ahead of most of its brethren, a 120-page book could not possibly be adequate. This is the penultimate season 19 novelization in publication order, 
Black Orchid is very far in the future, but in publication order so far, we've already had bangers, like Chris Bidmead's Castor Valva, Episode 76 of this podcast, and Eric Sayward's The Visitation, Episode 70. So the bare patches in the novelization, like the bare patches on the studio floor that so irked director Peter Grimwade, who was supposed to be making a lush jungle epic, are pretty evident. And as large stretches of the story involve grown Earthmen playing with paper dolls, you need a lot of explanation of the subtext to make the book work on any more than just a surface level. And the security arrangements? Security effectiveness 100%. 1,000%. 1 billion, trillion, trillion percent. Or more, perhaps. Boom! Do you want me to prove it? No, no, no. I'd rather know how you control the kinder. Oh, that's very simple. With this. They're very primitive, you know. They think I've captured their souls. Mirrors. It's very clever. Do you think, sir? Yeah, ma... Careful! I'm so sorry. It's easily mended, a drop of glue. Don't be silly. You can't mend people, can you? You can't mend people. Go on! Press the button! The novelization does make the Christian imagery quite explicit. Even though Terence never outwardly comments on the symbolism, the repeated references to snakes tempting women and the prominence of apples in the text makes it fairly obvious what's going on. And in case you did miss it, the book's third paragraph is a single sentence. No doubt about it, Divaloka was paradise. Capital P. Hindle's quote from Abide With Me is set aside in quotation marks, making it a deliberate reference rather than an accidental allusion. This may be perhaps the most blatant use of Christianity in Doctor Who since the final episode of The Romans back in 1965. Although, of course, for this reader, not raised in a Christian tradition, it was years and years after I first saw and read Kinda that I even learned what Abide With Me was. But that's a function of where and when and how I grew up, which I'm sure many of my listeners would not share. However, Terence does nothing to highlight the Buddhist and Freudian elements which is a bit odd. You would think as Barry Letts' right-hand man for five years, and as the guy who wrote the novelization for both The Abominable Snowman, episode 10 of this podcast, which righted the ship from Mervyn Hazeman's and Henry Lincoln's frankly anti-Eastern religion TV scripts, and Planet of the Spiders, episode 16, Barry Letts' magnum opus to his own adopted religion, that Terence would have done a little more to bring out the Buddhism. But the characters from the Mara-inspired dream sequence in Tegan's head, named in the TV closing credits as Dukkha, Anika, and Anatta, go unnamed in the novelization. Neither is it explicitly made obvious that the three surviving Earth crewmen, Sanders, Todd, and Hindle, represent the ego, superego, and id, for that matter. The later 1990s novels, the N.A.'s, the MAs, the EDAs, and PDAs would not have missed that. But in a short book aimed at the kids, all of this goes by without any comment. The lack of development of Kinda's subtext is largely forgivable, largely, due to Terence's usual crisp writing, although there is a momentary lapse when he rather redundantly describes Commander Sanders as a grizzled, 
gray-haired veteran, grizzled, of course, suggesting gray-haired. And it's hard to hide certain bits of cleverness in the script, and Terence benefits from that secondhand. The goings-on amongst the Kinda and the Earthfolk, the A and the B plots respectively, are directly paralleled. Like the Mara, the TSS transport battle machine, is said to be, quote, controlled directly from the brain of the wearer. When Tegan argues with the Mara in her dream sequence, Terence has the dialogue flow together without any he said, she said. And for a brief moment, it all reads like Tom Stoppard, which means at least in that scene, Terence really was getting the point across. Have you changed your mind yet? No, I have not. Oh, good. Because there's somebody I'd like you to meet. Or do you two already know each other? I hope you two are going to be friends. Do you think you will? More tricks? Well, yes. I suppose so. It's a bit obvious, isn't it? Oh, yes, of course. A child could see through it, and that's why I like it. Obviously, one of you is real, and the other an illusion created by me. That's obvious, isn't it? Yes, it is. Is it? Well, in that case, all that remains is for you two ladies to work out which one of you is which. Obviously. And, by the way, as I record this the day after the release of Pete McTighe's trailer for the Season 20 collection Blu-rays, that scene really is timeless, isn't it? He's still informing Doctor Who over 41 years later, and Janet Fielding has still got it, playing the same dual role she played in Kinda over 41 years later. A rare continuity error slips by Terence in the book when he tells us that Tegan first met the Doctor at the beginning of his fifth incarnation, which is perhaps forgivable, as Terence wasn't formally attached to Doctor Who at the time and didn't novelize Legopolis. However, Terence does go out of his way to tie the Earth colonists into the established Earth Empire, set forth during Terence and Barry's Pertwee years. Quote, presumably, this must be the period when the Empire of Earth was expanding throughout the galaxy. This continuity, however, may slightly be at variance to the TV script where Christopher Bailey, according to James Couray Smith in the production notes, wasn't intending to state definitively that these were Earth crewmen. Also added by Terence to the story is a hint as to the fate of the missing crewmen, Roberts and such. Quote, Presumably, the three men missing from the expedition had encountered the Mara, resisted, and been driven to madness and death. A nicely dark aside, not explicitly stated on TV. Separated from the TV actors, the small guest cast reads nearly as well on the printed page as they played on TV. Even in print, Dr. Todd is still one of the great pseudo-companions, bouncing off the Fifth Doctor very effectively and more than making up for the absence of Nyssa in Parts 2 and 3 of this story. Unfortunately, the long padding sequence in Part 4, where Tegan and Adric blame each other for various plot developments, and no, I'm not playing that clip, this is a typically unsuccessful Eric Sayward-penned workaround to an underrunning story, see also Lash, time, is included in the book nearly verbatim, 
Now in the 70s, Terence would have been working from rehearsal scripts, not camera scripts or transmission scripts, and might have cheerfully ignored all that stuff, filmed weeks or months later during the production of Earthshock. In sum, the novelization of Kinda is not Terence's finest hour, but even the shortest of Terence's efforts, not written on autopilot but not given its full attention either, are still fun to read. Mostly. Next time on Doctor Who Literature, our next scheduled novelization is a step back in time from book 84 to book 83, but a jump forward in time from season 19 to season 20. We say goodbye to the era of the holy photographic covers, then we move forward to a short-lived era where the covers are painted, but a photograph of Peter Davison pops out of the neon tube logo. Two of my favorite covers in the Target line, by the way, in Target books 83 and 85, published sequentially in early 1984. I also owe you a bonus episode, trying to chase that down for you. Coming up after book 83 and the bonus episode, we reach book 85, which is the final of 10 straight Peter Davison novelizations. And then we begin a glorious new era as the target books go back in time, back to the 1960s, and start filling in the many gaps in the novelization range beginning with a curious choice for book 86 with a second Doctor story that is beloved possibly by only one person in the world, and that person is going to be joining us to talk about book 86, which is still a few weeks off, so I'll leave you in suspense. That's coming up in the next month on Doctor Who Literature. Thank you for joining me on another episode of the Doctor Who Literature podcast. This podcast is produced by David Barsky, Jim Sangster, and yours truly. This week's episode was written and edited by me. Our logo was designed by Jim Sangster. Special thanks to my special guest, Dale Smith, Doctor Who novelist, Black Archives writer. I will post some links in the show notes. This podcast can be found on most of your podcast apps of choice. You can find all past episodes at podcasters.spotify.com slash pod slash show slash Doctor Who Lit. It really helps if you rate five stars and subscribe. You can find me on Twitter at Doctor Who Novels, that's DR Who Novels, on email at Doctor Who Literature, that's DR Who Literature at gmail.com, and on Mastodon at DR Who Novels at mastodon.social. Please drop me a line with your comments, questions, and suggestions. Thank you for listening, and whatever you do, keep turning the pages.
Direction point. Direction point. A Doctor Who Podcast Network.